Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Welcome to Creating a Family, Talk About Adoption and Infertility. Today we're going to be talking about opiates and other drugs, including methadone, and how they will impact the child, both in the short term and the long term. And we'll also be talking about hepatitis B and C and other blood-borne diseases that uh, families who are considering an adoption match uh, may have uh, to consider. Um, this was a uh, long-requested show by both the professional and the parent community. I think you are really going to enjoy it. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. Opioids uh, in our central nervous system, in our brain and, and our bodies, we have naturally occurring opioid receptors, right? So opioids um, in many ways are some of the least damaging to the developing brain compared to other substances. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Adoption and Education Support Nonprofit. And you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. One of the many things we do here at Creating a Family is have pre-adoption, pre- and post-adoption educational courses for families. Uh, this could be uh, follow domestic adoption, international adoption, uh, it can also be foster care adopt for foster care adoption. We have over 100 some odd courses. There are one-hour audio courses, interview with leading experts in the field, uh, and we do offer certificates of completion. You can get more information about our courses by going to our website, creatingafamily.org, and then uh, clicking on the tab online courses. I guess that would be obvious, right? Um, we are a weekly radio show, and we utilize the podcast model. That way you can listen whenever and wherever you want, and it also means you can subscribe to the podcast. Uh, use whatever app you are currently using to subscribe, and if you're listening over your computer uh, at our website, you could subscribe right on the radio page of our website. This show, as well as many of the other resources are uh, provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from our gold sponsors, who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to those struggling to create a family. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include... Children's Connection. They are an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the United States. We also have Holt International. Founded in 1956, they want every child to have a loving and secure home, and they are leaders in the global community in finding families for children who need them. And we have Vista Del Mar. They are a licensed and accredited nonprofit adoption agency with over 65 years of experience helping to create families. They have three adoption programs, a private infant program, an international program, and an adoption through foster care program. 
In addition to our gold sponsors, we also have other sponsors whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. We ask that when choosing an adoption service provider, please consider choosing one from the Creating a Family directories, which you can find on our uh, professional provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, just a host of factors that we think are important when choosing. And uh, when you choose someone from our directory, you are supporting us as well as them and we thank you. Today we're going to be talking about accepting an adoption match with opiates, methadone, or hepatitis. Uh, our guest today is Dr. Julia Bledsoe. She is a pediatrician specializing in adoption medicine and drug and alcohol exposure, and she has dual appointments with the University of Washington Center for Adoption Medicine and the University of Washington Fetal Alcohol Syndrome Clinic. She is also an adoptive mom. Welcome to Creating a Family, Dr. Bledsoe. Thank you very much. You know, in the past, uh, we well, this, this summer, some one of our uh, partner, uh, our sponsors, uh, said something about there were domestic infant agency, and they said, you know, what we really need, uh, and we don't find on your site, is a uh, our resources specific to drug exposure. Well, in my mind, I was thinking, gosh, we have done so many uh, shows. In fact, including some with uh, your your partner, Julian. Uh, Julian Davies, uh, and and on on drug and alcohol, um, but then as I started thinking about it, I, I thought about it, and I thought so often in these resources that we provide, we go off talking more about alcohol, and then we get uh, a letter from one of our um, uh, community, our online community people. And we have a huge online support group, and she's a member. And her name is Kelly, and she said, I am so looking forward to this show. This is after we announced it. Most information on prenatal drug exposure tells you that drug impacts are unpredictable, but alcohol is the worst. So, and then they do, they, they provide an entire resource about FASD. That's not <laughs> helpful to my particular situation. And I realize that she's right. That's what we've done as well. We talk about, we include alcohol and drugs in the same show when we're doing show or the same resource if we're providing, you know, articles or fact sheets or tip sheets or, or videos. And we don't really break them out. And so often we end up spending most of our time talking about alcohol because we know how how devastating the impact of alcohol is. So today we're going to not uh, – we're not going to succumb to that temptation. We're going to try to talk mostly um, about uh, about the drugs. So I want to start by asking, and you've got, as I mentioned, you have a dual appointment both with the FASD clinic, which I will add also deals a lot with drug exposure, not just alcohol exposure, as well as adoptive medicine. So you are like the perfect person for me to ask this question to. What are the more common drugs that you see expectant moms utilizing and, and then their children being potentially exposed to? Well, that's an excellent question. And, you know, certainly um, the drugs that we're seeing make a big comeback in the United States. One, of course, are opiates. And we're all very aware from news programs about the escalating opioid addiction uh, epidemic in this country. And so we definitely are seeing uh, not only prescription opioid use, but also methadone use for and um, suboxone or buprenorphine um, as a, and methadone as ways for women to deal with that addiction. Uh, and, um, of course, uh, then we're seeing heroin make a, a big comeback. And, of course, uh, with that, the risk of other diseases that are associated with IV drug use. 
We still do see some um, cocaine exposure, uh, although really I think the big cocaine epidemic was a couple of decades ago. Um, but we're also seeing methamphetamine uh, and uh, probably the most common, um, what we know is the most commonly used illicit substance during pregnancy is marijuana. And with the move nationwide to legalize marijuana, um, I think that's something that we're going to continue to see uh, on the rise. Yeah, I I agree with you, and I'm so glad you mentioned marijuana because that was something on our um, on our outline that we certainly wanted to to cover because I we also see uh, and hear from uh, families uh, considering adoption that they're seeing that as well as well as professionals. All right, you mentioned a couple, um, cybroxone and methadone. Are there any other common treatment medications or drugs given to uh, addicts who are trying to get off of the illegal drugs? Those are really the two major ones, or Suboxone and, um, and Methadone. And Methadone is still by far the most common. Okay, gotcha. All right, so we want to make sure we include that as well. All right, so you've mentioned a couple, primarily uh, opiates, uh, heroin, methamphetamines, and marijuana. Let's let's break those out, starting with opiates. And and does opiates include oxycodone and oxycontin? Yes, and some it of does. The other? Okay, gotcha. Okay, yes, it so does. they're all in the same family. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so let's ta- let's start with opiates uh, or opioids. Uh, what are both the short and the long term impacts on infants who have been exposed to opiates during pregnancy? Well, we certainly know that one of the major risk factors for babies exposed to any sort of opioid during pregnancy is the risk of neonatal abstinence syndrome, which is withdrawal from the opiates uh, after delivery. And neonatal abstinence syndrome um, when babies are born basically addicted to narcotics or opioids, uh, they can go through a withdrawal syndrome that can be as uh, mild as sort of being more tremulous, being jittery, having difficulty with suck and swallow, having difficulty with, um, uh, with loose stools, or it can be as severe as seizure activity. Um, Regardless, these are children that are often very uncomfortable after delivery and require treatment with low-dose tapering off of morphine during the first weeks of life. Uh, so it certainly is uh, can mean that they end up staying in the hospital for longer under monitoring uh, to make sure that we are treating them and helping them get over uh, the withdrawal from, from birth mom's opiates. And are opiates the worst of the drugs we're we're talking primarily about? Opiates, heroin, methamphetamines, and marijuana. Are opiates the worst uh, for causing neonatal abstinence syndrome, also known as NAS? They are. And um, it's interesting, the withdrawal syndrome uh, that we see with cocaine, uh, for example, can look a little bit similar in terms of tremulousness, jitteriness of the baby. But interestingly, uh, cocaine withdrawal is probably not really withdrawal. It actually, the symptoms we see in the babies are probably the effects of cocaine itself. Uh, Cocaine has a relatively long half-life compared with other uh, drugs of abuse, and so usually these um, 
these symptoms we see in babies from cocaine are not so much withdrawal, but the effect of the drug itself and goes away once the drug is washed out after about a week. Um, we know that kids with marijuana exposure can have a, a much milder withdrawal syndrome as well. Uh, and methamphetamines, again, um, very similar symptoms, uh, but the withdrawal uh, tends to be more short-lived. And we don't tend with either marijuana, cocaine, or methamphetamines, we don't tend to give any medications for um, those symptoms or withdrawal other than to monitor the baby and, and try to console them. Okay, so um, in, we have a question um, from one of our audience, how serious is drug dependency and withdrawal for the infant? Um, would it be safe to say that it's, it depends on the severity? It does absolutely depend on the severity, um, and we do know that you know babies born, um, particularly with uh, opioid addiction, uh, that the biggest risk to them is seizure activity, uh, and pauses in breathing, uh, and so uh, it can be quite serious for them, and and they need to be monitored in a. Uh, uh, often an ICU uh, type, uh, if they're having seizures, obviously in an ICU type setting, uh, but certainly they need to be, you know, hospitalized uh, for the the initial uh, parts of withdrawal. Usually, the withdrawal is first right after delivery, uh, and you know, the baby we sort of titrate up tincture of of morphine really uh, to uh, to make it so that they don't have. Uh, those symptoms, and then we slowly uh, decrease the amount of morphine over time. And the amount of morphine you give is dependent on how much you, you, you give enough morphine to ameliorate the symptoms, and that's how you know what the right amount is, and then you slowly start tapering it off. Is that how I understand it? That's exactly right. And and do we, you have not mentioned heroin. Is, are you including heroin in, heroin in the opiates? Absolutely. Okay, so heroin is included with all the class of opiate of opioids. So as far as dependency, and morphine is a is the treatment choice for any of the opiate addicted not addicted because we dependent is is, is a better word I suppose for infants, but opiate opiate dependent children, um, uh, uh, morphine is the drug of choice or the medication of choice. Exactly right. Okay. Um, one of the questions that we uh, often get is for a number of families uh, travel out of state to adopt an infant, um, sometimes foster care as well, but, but primarily uh, infancy, I mean domestic infant adoption. So if a child is born dependent, how does a family know how long they will have to stay in this uh, uh, city, they're, they're not, the, not the city of their home, um, and because they're anxious to be able to get the baby back as soon as possible, even if it means bring the baby back uh, under treatment or even taking back to a hospital in their home at the city. Well, we we know that that babies are all a little bit different in terms of how they will come down off of the opioids. Um, some babies, you know, it's within seventy two. Uh, hours for some babies, it's much more prolonged, and the longest I've seen a child uh, sort of need to wean down and be in a hospital setting is about a week and a week and a half. Um, sometimes we will discharge uh, a baby from the hospital with reliable, you know, uh, 
uh, caregivers uh, to continue that morphine wean. Um, but and, and the longest I've seen in the hospital, actually, is about three weeks uh, of slowly tapering down a baby. So it's a little bit variable. Everybody's neurochemistry is different. Every baby's neurochemistry is different. So uh, we often just have to follow what's going on with them. Um, I certainly haven't had an adoptive family, in my experience, uh, have to stay longer than a week, a week and a half in the hospital setting. So the baby is travelable usually. Um, yes. And about the longest would be about a week and a half, and the parents may well be administering the morphine as medication, um, but they will be under instructions of, of, of what to give, how to give, and whatever. How, is it exactly given in a right. shop, shop format? No, it's or, actually it's given, it's given in a liquid form. Oh, and we're, we try to be as objective as, as possible in terms of we have something called Finnegan scores, which were scores developed um, to sort of follow the symptoms that we see in opiate withdrawal so we can really get a good objective look at, at what symptoms the baby's having as we wean down on the morphine. And so uh, they're out of the hospital, generally speaking, within one to two weeks, one to one and a half weeks. But how long does... Can families expect the treatment for withdrawals to last uh, for a child that was born dependent? Well, again, most babies will be leaving the hospital uh, at a week off of the morphine, um, off of the oh, morphine suspension. Oh, so they would be suspension. off of yeah. the morphine uh, at, when they leave the hospital. Okay. Yes. All right. So most babies' treatment is about one to one and a half weeks. Right. Um, or shorter. Or shorter for some. Or shorter. Mm-hmm. So, what about if uh, um, what is uh, what's kind of the the outer realm of how long a child, uh, an infant, would need to be on morphine? Again, gradually tapering it, tapering it, tapering it. About about the three week mark. That's about the longest I've seen. Okay, gotcha. So up to three weeks is the longest. Interesting. Okay. All right. Now, we've talked about the withdrawal aspects. Uh, Let's also talk about uh, now the long and the short-term effects from opiate, including heroin exposure. Um, What does the research showing, what is the research showing, uh, and can can we extrapolate from research that was done on children who were cocaine exposed? Um, on how, because we certainly have long-term studies that have followed up those kids. Well, they're not kids now; they're adults. Um, uh, from uh, you know what was what I think was an awful uh, term, the crack baby ec- epidemic. Right. But, uh, so, but let's talk about what we know um, from opiates, the impact, and how they. Uh, short-term, I think we've pretty well hit upon it because it's NAS, uh, needle natal abstinence syndrome. Is there any other short-term issues that have to be? Uh, no, I you know most many babies who um, have gone through withdrawal will still have a little bit of um, sort of uh, difficulty with self-regulation, uh, which means sometimes their suck and swallow uh, um, 
to, to feed can be a little, they can have a, a slightly increased risk of sort of feeding difficulties. They can sometimes be a little more difficult to console, have a little more difficulty with sort of colic-like behaviors. Uh, and we do, you know, have, certainly have tips for adoptive parents or any parent dealing with uh, a prenatally exposed baby to sort of help um, the baby self-soothe and feed better. And, and so often, even in the, you know, for the first couple months of life, we can see this sort of difficulty in self-regulation uh, for babies that we don't always see, uh, that we don't see as commonly in kids who are not prenatally exposed to opiates. So, so again, a little; those are subtle things, but certainly we see them with a little more frequency in this population. Is that something that children outgrow? Yes, yes. It tends to be something that they outgrow. Interesting. All right, so short-term... Um, other than uh, being born dependent and self-regulatory issues uh, and perhaps suck-and-swallow type things and self-calming. What about long-term? As these children uh, grow into toddlers and preschoolers and especially as they begin school and the um, academic demands start increasing through elementary school, what is the research showing us on that? How do these children compare to children who were not exposed in a utero to opiates? Well, that is, is an excellent question. And the research for uh, prenatal drug exposure, uh, I'll just put in a little caveat here, it's very challenging to do because many of the children that we see um, are not only exposed to one substance, they're exposed to another. So many of the studies, you know, make an effort to sort of tease out um, the effect of other exposures, like alcohol or other drugs, but also to tease out socioeconomic status, uh, general intellectual development of the birth family. Uh, And so there are lots of variables that make this type of research extremely difficult. Um, but you know, having said, let me just let me throw this in to say nothing. We're thinking of this in the in the in the realm of adoption. But the majority of these children are being raised by parents who themselves are struggling with, if not addiction, certainly j- drug abuse. And these children are being raised in that environment. And we all know that, both from research and common sense, that children raised in both chaotic environments and environments where parents are using drugs. It's going to have an impact on children as well. So how do you tease that out? Yeah, very, very challenging. That's an excellent point. And, you know, I will often tell families that, you know, early childhood neglect, early childhood trauma can damage the developing brain in the same way that substances do. So you're absolutely right. It's one of those challenging variables uh, to, to, to pick apart. And so we do you know, have to rely on studies that have done their very best to control for these other variables. Uh, And interestingly enough, I mean, we know that um, opioids uh, in our central nervous system, in our brain and, and our bodies, we have naturally occurring opioid receptors, right? So opioids, um, in many ways, are some of the least damaging to the developing brain compared to other substances. We definitely see that withdrawal problem because when you're, you know, 
uh, used your brain is used to being bathed in lots of of opioids in the womb. You can have an upregulation of those receptors, which again makes makes it difficult in the withdrawal period. But down the road, we don't always see certainly don't see the profound as profound issues that we see with you know, with uh, prenatal alcohol exposure. But having said that, there are a number of studies. The studies are a little bit split, but um, there are a number of studies that suggest an impact on later childhood development. Uh, In specific, with infant-developed kids that are between 6 and 24 months of age, we can start to see um, slightly lower, and statistically significant, but slightly lower, uh, developmental scores on, you know, validated developmental screening, uh, both in sort of uh, psychomotor, so um, uh, delayed motor development, as well as some lower cognitive developmental scores. Well, we do also to control oh, for the. I mean, we know that IQ is is certainly a heritable condition. So were they able to control for what would be the predicted IQ of the child because the child's parents might also have been on a slightly lower uh, cognitive development, have have a slightly lower cognitive development? Have they controlled for that? Yeah. I mean, two, two of the studies that were teased out, and the best ones were actually done, one was done in 1989 and one was done in 2001. And in those, uh, and one was done in 2008 as well. And in those studies, they did, um, you know, unfortunately they were smaller uh, groups of children, but they were able to tease that out in terms of knowing about birth and controlling for birth family IQ. Um, so, you know, some yeah. suggestion that these ch- are children that can have slightly lower, and again, it was statistically significant when we're looking at research studies, uh, right. but, you know, slightly lower cognitive scores. We're not talking about 20 points in IQ, but we're talking about some subtle differences. Um, there are also some studies uh, in looking at early childhood development that um, between three and four years of age, uh, there are uh, also slightly lower language scores um, uh, in kids uh, and uh, a hint uh, that there may be an increase in attention uh, difficulties, so attention deficit disorder. Interesting. Okay, so that's uh, that's our opiates, and we're talking. And then have we seen when children start, as, as the academic demands start increasing, you know, usually we would think second to third grade, have we seen issues with some of the higher-level thinking, some of the executive functioning uh, issues, or is, have the studies followed? Have they been longitudinally, have they, gone, have they been ongoing long enough to follow uh, children to that age? Well, there, it's interesting. There was a, a recent study um, done that did show, uh, even at sort of nine years of age, uh, that one area in particular seemed to be impacted by opioid use, uh, in addition to having a slightly increased risk of attention deficit disorder. And, and that was in the area of math. Um, I was sort of very interested in this particular study. Again, it was a, it was small groups. It was 100 children who were exposed to methadone followed over time. Um, but it did show a, a, slightly, uh, de- uh, a slight decrease in math achievement uh, compared to non-exposed children. Um, 
I, that was interesting to me because knowing the fetal alcohol syndrome research very well, attention deficit and math disabilities are two of the most common disabilities we also see uh, in prenatal alcohol exposure. So it sort of mirrored that even though alcohol exposure was not um, seen in this age, in this group. And that suggests that maybe the part of the brain, that prefrontal cortex that governs um, attention, uh, executive function, and math, uh, that seems to be a little more vulnerable in the developing child, regardless of what you're exposed to. That would make some sense. Now, I think that what, uh, again, from an adoptive parent standpoint, what adoptive parents will often see is a they're, they're presented with a possibility of a match where the uh, expectant woman has been on methadone or uh, or uh, suboxone. Uh, am I saying that right? Suboxone. Yes. And uh, uh, and so the question that that we've got a number of people who submitted questions directly on this. I won't read them. I'll just uh, I'll summarize uh, them all, and that is. Is the exposure, if a, if a woman has been on methadone, uh, would you expect to see less short-term and long-term issues um, because she has been on methadone rather than on the uh, heroin or opiates or Oxycontin or whatever it was that, that she was on and she's using the methadone to get off of? Well, it partly depends on how much methadone she is on at the time of delivery. Because methadone has such a long half-life, sometimes the withdrawal period can actually be a little bit longer. Um, and so, you know, I would say that uh, that methadone compared to other op opioids is not necessarily protective uh, from these uh, long-term outcomes. Uh, to the brain... An opioid is an opioid, right? So whether it's methadone or oxycodone or heroin, they all have different half-lives. They're all, you know, metabolized a little bit differently in the body in terms of how long they take to clear. But, and methadone is a longer-acting one, which is why it's helpful to prevent withdrawal, you know, acute withdrawal in patients. Um, but it is the same, uh, the same substance to the developing brain. And so... You know, the studies looking at kids who've been on, um, you know, exposed to uh, oxycodone or methadone or suboxone or um, methadone, those all seem to look the same in terms of long-term outcomes. It seems it just common sense would say that uh, uh, expectant moms who are on methadone or suboxone are getting a steady dose in there, so they're not having their, the spikes. Are not is that does that have any form of of protection at all? It sounds like the answer is no. Um, well, not that anybody's been able to tease out. I think I think that's you know a challenging study to do. Um, but I don't think anybody's ever been able to tease out the difference in neurodevelopmental outcomes in kids down the road for women on methadone versus on heroin. I will say the protection of methadone is that the birth mom is not using IV drug, IV needles, and so the risk uh, of blood-borne infection is probably less in women who are on methadone than women who are 
are on heroin. I wouldn't say probably less. I think that we know it's less. Uh, that those are babies that are less at risk for some of the, you know, the other problems we see associated with heroin use. Exactly. Yeah. So it's not it's not simply the um, the, uh, the the long and short term impact on the on the baby from the drug exposure. It's also the impact uh, for both the mother and the child on the blood borne diseases, which we're, we're gonna we are gonna be talking about that. We're gonna circle back to that towards the end of the show and talk about that. All right, now we've talked about uh, opiates and heroin. Um, let's talk about methamphetamines. Um, and what, we, what we're talking about now is the we've covered uh, their potential for withdrawal. Um, and as I, just to summarize what you had said about withdrawal, it tends to be shorter, less severe, and seldom uh, is morphine needed or any other form of treatment needed other than a watch-and-see approach and a uh, symptom amelioration with the child with, from, from trying to make the child feel better. Uh, did I summarize that well with uh, methadone? Yes, you did. Okay. Now, Let's talk about the long and short-term impact of exposure to meth uh, on um, babies. So we've just talked about the short. Are there any other short-term uh, other than uh, needle natal absent, NAS? Um, yeah, and I, and I will sort of clarify that, that, um, that the uh, withdrawal from uh, amphetamine exposure uh, in utero is we, we don't tend to call that neonatal abstinence syndrome. That's sort of a term reserved for opioid withdrawal. Uh, okay. We and there there you know sort of is a little bit of of con, conflict in the literature about whether uh, amphetamine exposure causes um, uh, causes the same sort of withdrawal in every child. We the reported symptoms include sort of a irritability, you know, jerkiness, sweatiness, sort of uh, sneezing of the baby. Uh, but again, it doesn't tend to be um, uh, as prolonged uh, or need to be treated the way opioid exposure, um, neonatal abstinence syndrome needs to be treated. Um, the other, you know, it's interesting. Oh, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, so, no, you go on. What you were going to say is more interesting. I was just going to move us on to talking about long-term impacts. Yeah, long-term impacts. So, uh, so there. This is probably, um, you know, uh, right now the area of most controversy in the study of exposure. And, you know, I think people are often seeing what methamphetamine abuse does to the user in terms of, you know, dental decay and and terrible effects to the user. I think it's always a little bit surprising uh, that when we look at um, both British studies and American studies uh, of neurodevelopmental outcomes in these kids that they aren't worse because, you know, it obvious it, it, it certainly takes a toll on the user. Um, but we do know, you know, that um, probably one of the best studies um, showed that, in, you know, at a year of age, in terms of motor development, mental impairment, um, there were uh, some differences only observed in infants with heavy prenatal exposure. All right, and not with those with lighter exposure. That was a really well done study, uh, what we call a prospective study done in Britain. Um, in an American study, uh, we showed that um, you know there was uh, in sort of kids at um, three to five years of ages, uh, kids exposed to prenatal methamphetamine were more likely to have 
emotional reactivity, um, some oppositional behavior, behaviors associated with attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder. Uh, and then when those same kids were seen at seven and a half years of age, um, the oppositionality seemed to be uh, less of a problem, but still seeing um, core symptoms associated with uh, ADHD, so hyperactivity and inattention. We didn't see um, a pattern of learning disabilities in those kids other than ADHD. So we didn't see uh, the lower cognitive scores, lower IQ scores, um, but again, that sort of behavior, uh, ADHD overlay was seen even sort of controlling for uh, the other factors we talked about, birth, family, and other exposures. Yeah, that's a problem. You just answered the question I was going to ask. Did that study control for? Um, and and they were. I mean, interestingly enough, some of the most some of the studies utilize adoptive families um, as some of one of the the not the control group, but one of the groups to be studied because they know that the children more likely are not being raised in uh, an environment that where drug abuse is is happening. So they're able to withdraw. That's a way to control that variable. All right. So. Um, with methamphetamines, we've covered that. Let's talk about marijuana, and that's an interesting one because we anticipate uh, that we will be seeing more expectant women uh, smoking marijuana because of it's becoming legal now in more states. Uh, so what do we know about the impact of, of marijuana uh, on the uh, developing fetus and the baby and um, you, what you said something at the very beginning about that you do see some form of withdrawal, which which surprised me. I would not have anticipated that. What does that withdrawal look like? Um, again, the withdrawal seen sort of in um, children exposed to heavy marijuana. Um, uh, sort of um, one of the the best studies that was done. It was a. a a long-term, again, one of these prospective studies where they they followed women that they knew were using uh, varying degrees of marijuana, and they followed them, you know, through pregnancy and then after delivery. And in um, this observational study, uh, they showed that infants born to um, mothers who were um, just using marijuana, they were more likely after birth to be hyper-excitable, sort of irritable and jittery, again, um, compared to non-exposed healthy infants. So this, you know, sort of uh, difficulty in, in, in soothing and calming uh, as easily as non-exposed healthy infants. So in some ways, similar but milder uh, than uh, behaviors that we tend to see in the other forms of drug withdrawal. In long term, what are we seeing? Um, and there ought to be some good long term studies because certainly pot's been around for a long time. There are some good studies, and again, you know, the, I think this is one of the disadvantages of being in my field. Is I feel like there are a number of very good studies that can show slightly different things. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> This study that I that I just uh, described that that did um, talk about withdrawal symptoms showed that. Um, prenatal marijuana exposure did not affect global intelligence, meaning, you know, your general uh, intellectual ability, but it was associated with impairments in sustained attention. So, again, we're talking ADHD. Um, a particular type of memory called visual memory, 
uh, in exposed pre-adolescence as well as adolescence. All right. So, um, again, visual memory uh, is uh, an area that we often use in math uh, and other um, uh, sorts of cognitive tasks. So that was something that they definitely showed. Um, there was another uh, very good prospective study about about 648 kids that at six years of age, again, you know, with heavy users, uh, did show a slightly negative impact on intellectual development. Uh, and that heavy use during the first trimester showed sort of lower verbal uh, scores. Second trimester seemed to be more involved with memory, short-term memory. Um, and again, uh, uh, that one, uh, that study was not quite as well received by the research com community, but certainly is out there in the literature. Uh, and then there was a third long-term study that, again, showed sort of that visual, spatial memory and attention uh, were impacted and exposed kids, as well as an increase in impulsive behavior and hyperactivity. So again, we're talking about those that ADHD uh, triad that we tend to see as a you know, as an outcome in, in many of these exposed kids. And, and and it sounds like not a significant difference between children whose mother smoked marijuana in pregnancy and, and those who took methamphetamines. Uh, and actually, from what you're saying, and those who took opioids, uh, those who used well, opioids. Yeah, I, you know, I think the difference with, with marijuana use is this this particular visual spatial uh, issue, and we know that that heavy users themselves, uh, uh, people who use marijuana heavily, do have more difficulty with visual memory and visual spatial tasks, and 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 so that is a little bit of a difference, I think, uh, between marijuana uh, and the other uh, exposures. And we think in terms of just from the standpoint of of impact on the adult who is addicted or addicted in the case of opiates, or let's just say using um, opiates versus marijuana, we would think that opiates are significantly worse for the adult that is using than would marijuana. And yet, if I'm hearing you correctly, from the child's exposure, from a child's standpoint who has been exposed, in fact, uh, they may be seeing more impact from, or at least a unique impact from uh, mm -hmm. marijuana exposure, and that would be the visual-spatial issues. Yes, I think it is, it's clear that uh, particularly heavy marijuana use during pregnancy um, will will impact the fetus. And I think that is a message that, you know, particularly for adolescent users um, and for young adults, it's a very important message to get out that even though this, you know, may be a legal drug, it's not safe to the developing fetus, just like alcohol is not safe to the developing fetus. You are listening to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and infertility. We primarily keep in touch uh, with our community through our weekly e-newsletter. We have two of them, uh, one for adoption and one for inter infertility. You get to choose, or you could choose both. We let you know about the latest developments in adoption as well as the upcoming week's blog topics as well as the uh, weekly radio show topics so that you could submit questions in advance. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter on any page of our website, creatingafamily.org, on the top right-hand side. Many parents believe that if a child is not born dependent, 
um, and this is speaking with opioids, I guess that's the correct, with a, a neonatal abstinence syndrome with opioids, or showing signs of any form of dependence or withdrawal from the other drugs we've mentioned. They believe that if the child, if it does not express any of those short-term uh, symptoms, um, or that the child is not born with drugs in their system, that the prognosis is better for that child in the long term. Or conversely, if a child is born dependent and has to go through withdrawals, uh, then that that child will suffer more impact from in utero exposure. Uh, is this true? Not necessarily. And again, uh, that's such an excellent question um, because I think uh, – when you're looking at prenatal exposure, all we can tell you about it for sure is that it's a risk factor for neurodevelopmental problems down the road. It doesn't mean every baby exposed to it uh, that you know that uh, drug will have uh, a poorer outcome than a non-exposed baby, but it is definitely a risk factor. Um, and so, you know, my counseling to families is to say, uh, remember. Uh, that the part of the brain that is affected by prenatal exposures is the part of the brain that we often um, don't really see function fully until kids are a little bit older, older, right? It's the part of the brain. We don't expect toddlers to have sustained attention or do a lot of visual spatial tasks. So, you know, just as with alcohol, the time of life where we often see the emergence of learning disabilities related to exposures is really between five and eight years of age. That's when we can sort of, you know, expect kids to have more sustained attention and focus, to do more higher-order thinking in terms of problem-solving and executive function. So it's a risk factor, and my, you know, counseling to families to say, we're going to follow these kids' development like a hawk. And so, you know, if they start to flag uh, in infancy and toddlerhood, we get them into early intervention around school age. We do a really good panel of testing, what we call neuropsychometric testing, so that we can identify uh, learning disabilities early and give them the support they need because that can improve outcome. All right, and and uh, although we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about alcohol, I think this is an important question to note. How common is it in your experience for women who use drugs during their pregnancy to also drink excessively during their pregnancy? Um, well, it's variable, and I think part of it is, depends on, on the, the birth mom's drug of choice. Uh, we know that, that often um, people who are abusing what I would sort of loosely call the uppers, you know, methamphetamine, cocaine, that often to come down, they're using depressants, and alcohol is a depressant. Uh, so, so there seems to be a little, bit of cor- a little more correlation uh, between uh, methamphetamine use uh, and cocaine use and uh, prenatal alcohol exposure. We all, you know, we, we do know that many women who use opioids if they can't get a hold of their of the opioid, uh, will sometimes use alcohol. Uh, it seems uh, to be looking at the literature. There's a slightly decrease 
decreased risk of sort of co-use of alcohol and methadone, which I think is interesting. Uh, and for many marijuana users, there's some alcohol exposure, but often um, sort of a co-use of alcohol, but n often not quite at the levels we see um, for a chronic alcoholic. So, you know, I think uh, for for some birth uh, birth moms, uh, they, you know, they co-use alcohol a lot, and some some don't. And it does depend a little bit on the substance that there is their drug of choice. We have a question from Lauren Marie. She wants to know if the if the parent does test positive for opiates, how do we know what drug they are specifically using? And although she didn't ask this, I will ask: Is it important to know which specific opiate or um, as you had said earlier, uh, from the drug, from the brain standpoint, an opiate is an opiate is an opiate. Um, but uh, to answer Lauren Marie's question, how do you know what specific opiate the person, the mother, is using, and is it important to know? Um, I would say that um, it can be very difficult to know from a toxicology screen that's done on a newborn which opiate it is. So, so when I'm looking as a physician at a toxicology screen on a newborn, it, will it won't tell me methadone, heroin, oxycodone. It'll just say opiates. So, um, so it's often, you know, if the birth mom hasn't disclosed to us what she's been using, um, you know, from our toxicology point of view, it really will just say opiates. So, so I say the, you know, I will say the only, um, the only reason it might be important to know is to give us a little sense of the half-life of the drug, right? So, you know, Suboxone and Methadone have longer half-lives than some of the other opiates. So it would it would give us a heads up as to how long the baby might need support. But I would say we're going to look at the baby anyway in terms of their withdrawal pattern and treat them. So it's not uh, certainly not at all crucial to know which of the opiates the baby is born uh, exposed to. And the toxicology screen will just say opiates. It won't spell it out for us. So Kelly asks, one thing you hear a lot is that early intervention is key and that a baby's brain can be rewired during the first couple of years with the right therapy. What exactly does that therapy entail? Where can you find it? What strategies should you be using at home with your child with a diagnosis of prenatal drug exposure? First, let's go back. Um, I think we, would, we've, we certainly all heard early in intervention is key. What do we mean by early intervention? Um, most pediatricians refer to early intervention as um, occupational therapy, physical therapy um, for babies who are uh, speech and language therapy. Those are sort of the three things that we often focus on in early intervention for babies who are flagging in terms of their development. What we can tell you is that um, an early intervention program probably will not um, will not serve a baby that's not flagging developmentally. So often, you know, we will recommend that a baby be evaluated by an early intervention team, but if they're scoring well within the normal range, that baby often won't qualify uh, for services in the home. And that's good news <laughs> if a baby is developing normally, what we usually Absolutely. recommend for those, you know, what we usually recommend is just to continue to provide uh, 
you know, obviously very important for these kids to have a stable, structured, nurturing home that's enriching. And so, you know, the things that we that I think most adoptive parents are really excellent at is providing a stable, structured, nurturing home. Um, early intervention, again, uh, so we don't, so I'll be clear, we don't, you know, if your baby's developing normally, we don't think you need to run out and, you know, enlist an occupational therapy therapist or a physical therapist to work with you because that baby's doing fine. Yeah, you're um, doing it, it, whatever you're doing with the child is is functioning as is, is, is adequate support. Do you reg- agree with Kelly's assessment that a baby's brain can be rewired during the first couple of years with the right therapy? Well, I will say that we know a tremendous amount about neuroplasticity, right? The plasticity of the brain. Um uh, as something that is pretty remarkable. And I'll say in my career where I've worked a lot with internationally adoptive kids who've been profoundly neglected in an orphanage setting, we see, you know, even as late as, you know, two and three years of age, these kids come home and with good environmental stimulation, they just explode developmentally. So I certainly have witnessed firsthand not only, you know, developmental explosion, but even tremendous growth of the brain in kids who've suffered really profound neglect, let's say, you know, for example, in a Russian orphanage. Um, so I will say that, you know, there is a lot of uh, development of X of you know better uh, neural pathways that we can see as a result of stimulation and uh, environment. Now, having said that, I also you know very much believe that there are certain predispositions which may be hardwired. Uh, and you know, I'll give you the example of attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder. Is we do know that if you have a birth parent with ADHD you have a pretty high recurrence risk, somewhere between 40 and 60% of that kid going on to have ADHD. So, you know, we can do as much stimulation in the uh, uh, in early infancy, uh, and we still may not be able to prevent a condition that does have a genetic component to it. Um, and then if you add, you know, prenatal exposure on top of that, you know that this child may, you know, if you have a birth parent with both ADHD uh, and also is abusing substances, then you know this is a kid who may have a double risk factor for that. So you need to watch it very carefully. So I think I'm I'm always concerned that adoptive parents think, oh, if I just had done this thing early in childhood, my child wouldn't have ADHD, and I think we can't prevent everything um, because some things are, are, you know, the tendency will be hardwired. And we know it's the same for mental illness too, right? Depression and anxiety, bipolar right. and schizophrenia. Those we know the heritability of these factors. We've right. done a number of, um, for um, people uh, listening to this course, you will know that there are a number of, we have a number of resources on the heritability of, of various mental illnesses as well as mm-hmm. uh, things like ADHD. We have another question here, wanting to know how to foster attachment while a baby is suffering through withdrawal. Any thoughts on uh, this, uh, how parents can be most supportive uh, to an infant going through withdrawal? Oh, that's an excellent question. And I think one of... um 
one of the hard parts as a parent is to see a baby, you know, the withdrawal symptoms, they seem uncomfortable, right? These are babies that seem uncomfortable, have difficulty soothing. And we know that these are often babies that really love to be swaddled tightly and held closely. Um, And so, you know, those sorts of maneuvers um, also, you know, can definitely foster attachment, um, you know, some of these babies do better in a, you know, a quiet room without a lot of talking to them. And so, you know, you can sort of judge their, uh, based on their behavior, whether or not they're sort of oversensitive to sounds or to light. Um, but to ho- certainly hold them close, um, you know, keep them warm and swaddled. Uh, a lot of people ask questions about sort of skin-to-skin t- contact with baby, and if that seems to be comforting to them, that's great. Sometimes it's hard to swaddle a baby and do skin-to-skin contact, uh, yeah, yeah. but certainly ho- holding them close, reading their cues, and we know that what we call contingent care, sort of the the parent responding to the baby's cues, whether you know they're uh, sort of seeming to be hyper-aroused uh, or seem to be calming to the sound of your voice, you can sort of read and provide those, um, you know, and, and you know, have your behavior match the baby's needs. So those are all things I think that can be done. And then I think it's important to remember that this will pass, right? Is this that is, this just, time you took of the words year? out of my mouth. Yeah. Know that this, although this may feel intense, you know this 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 exact period of time when the baby is struggling uh through withdrawal really is relatively short and if that's helpful for parents to know uh that the intensity of their care and their concern this too shall pass yes well said all right um Here's a question from Mandy. She says, from what I've read, there are many similarities between drug exposure and trauma and how it affects children's learning learning and behavior. When a child has both of those challenges, is it possible to tell the difference on what is causing specific problems? And is the treatment different depending on whether it is being caused by prenatal exposure or trauma? That's an excellent question. And, you know, again, um, being in the the fetal alcohol syndrome clinic, this is something that we see over and over again where, you know, we often see kids where the the water's muddy, right? They're they're exposed, uh, they're neglected or traumatized as well as being exposed to alcohol or other drugs. And my answer to you is it can be incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to tease out which causes, you know, what causes what. Um, Again, that sort of concept is that uh, certain parts of the brain are more vulnerable in the developing baby. And, you know, uh, one of the the vulnerable areas of the brain is that prefrontal cortex that governs sustained attention, impulse control, emotional regulation. And that part of the brain is vulnerable to trauma as well as prenatal exposures. So if you have an older child who's, you know, struggling in those areas, it is impossible to tell whether that's the trauma or where, you know, or whether that is prenatal exposure. In terms of treatment, I think the most important thing is we know that children who have been traumatized really should get trauma-focused therapy. And so, you know, regardless of what issue it is that they're struggling with, um, these are often kids that really, uh, you know, in addition to supporting their learning, treating their ADHD 
you know, with behavior supports or medicine or both. Uh, they're often children who really um, will do well uh, in terms of, you know, treating their anxiety uh, in particular or post-traumatic stress or rea- emotional reactivity. They'll do very well if they are uh, put in with a trauma-focused therapist. So that is, I think, sort of the major difference you know, if you have a prenatally exposed child who was adopted at birth and never has suffered trauma, you know, they don't they don't really need uh, trauma-focused therapy. But the kids who've been traumatized will really benefit from uh, from a good therapist with a background in trauma. Are children who are exposed prenatally to any of the drugs we've been talking about today at greater risk for drug abuse as teens and adults if they were adopted and not raised in an environment that exposed them to drug use? They all are, and I know that's often a very hard thing to say, but the more in the in the field of addiction medicine, the more we know about addiction, the more we know it does, just like heart disease and diabetes, have an inheritable component. So I, you know, again, as an adoptive parent, uh, I feel very strongly in a counseling other adoptive parents that if your child was born to someone who struggled with addiction, then they have a higher risk of addiction down the road, even if they're in a home that is addiction and substance free. And those studies, there's some interesting twin studies of kids who were, you know, one who stayed in a birth home with addiction and one that went to a um, uh, substance-free home, and, and they, they can have similar rates of addiction uh, in in adolescence and young adulthood. Um, but I will also say that some people come to addiction because they are self-medicating for other disorders. And so we see, you know, people turn to substances to self-medicate for anxiety or depression or ADHD. And so if we as adoptive parents can follow these kids really closely, and if they start to struggle with those issues, treat them appropriately so they don't turn to substances, we can sort of lessen that risk of addiction. Uh, But addiction is an inheritable disorder, and these are all higher-risk kids than kids who are non, you know, don't have a, a family history of addiction. So, if I hear you, if I hear you right, what you're saying is it's not the impact of the prenatal exposure to drugs, but it is the the inheritance of the genetics that might predispose them to uh, to to become addicted. Uh, am I understanding you right? Well, you know, I will say with we we're not a hundred percent sure um, for for the drugs we've talked about today. We do know for alcohol, uh, there are some studies to suggest that if you're born to an alcoholic and you were you know so a family history of addiction as well as being prenatally exposed, there are some studies that suggest you are doubly vulnerable to alcoholism. As a as a disease, we don't know that for sure for these other substances, um, whether or not you know there's an additive effect of being exposed and being born uh, to someone who struggled with addiction. We're not a hundred percent sure. There haven't been good studies that spell that out for us. All right. So if you had, if you what, what are some things? just some short, sweet things for families to know that are considering a match or referral uh, where they either know or they suspect that the child has been exposed to opiates, methadone, heroin, methadone, um, I think I said that one already again, uh, marijuana, 
what are some takeaways that we could have parents know? These are the things that, things you should think about, things that you should consider. Um, I think the things that you should plan for, and, and when I'm counseling families pre-adoptively, I always think about, if I were adopting this baby, what would I plan for as a parent? And I would plan to follow, you know, first of all, um, and I think I've mentioned this, I sound like a broken record, but provide okay. a stable, stable, structured, nurturing home, free from substances, free from um, trauma, you know, as best as we can as parents, right? Uh, and then the other thing is to follow your child's development like a hawk so that even if they're doing really well when they get to elementary school age, when we can assess those higher-order thinking skills, have them assessed with neuropsychometric testing, look in detail about the, their strengths and weaknesses of their brain function so that if they are, you know, if they have areas uh, that are identified as where they may be flagging, we can really support them. And then be on the lookout for anxiety and depression in adolescence and get them good care if those things develop. And obviously, um, you know, if it looks like they're making choices that may lead to addiction, really uh, get them good therapy for that. If they've been traumatized and are adopted at older ages, you know, have a good trauma-focused therapist in your back pocket. So those are all the things that I would think about. And then if your child's been exposed to IV drug use, make sure they are screened for the diseases that can go along with that, like hepatitis B and hepatitis C. And that you, it was a great uh, segue into uh, the blood-borne diseases. And the ones that we primarily are concerned about, or that we hear about, I should say, are hep C, hepatitis B and C. Are there any other blood-borne diseases? Well, HIV, uh, obviously. Are, mm-hmm. uh, uh, so any other uh, blood-borne diseases that primarily come to mind when you know that uh, the mother has been using uh, IV drugs? Well, we certainly know that IV drug use can, um, or, you know, um, certainly drug use in general, can also go hand-in-hand with prostitution. Uh, And so, um, you know, we have seen a a reemergence of syphilis as a problem uh, in, um, uh, in, pregnancy, particularly for women who are are in the sex trade. So uh, the good news is that, you know, most babies are screened for these things at birth. All babies, I should say, in this country are screened for these things at birth. Syphilis is incredibly treatable. I was just going to say, and that's that's kind of a... Uh, that's a, a fairly easy uh, course of treatment, and the children are almost, well, as we say in this country, they are always tested for. Yes, they're uh, always tested okay. for it. HIV screening is also uh, routinely done, as is as are hepatitis B and C. Hepatitis B rates in this country have just plummeted because of the use of, oh. of universal oh. vaccination for that. Yeah. So it's, that it's much less common for us to see a child born with hepatitis B. And in this country, if birth mom is tested when she comes in, she tests positive for hepatitis B, there's a protocol when the baby's born, they get immune globulin, they get vaccine, and that plummets their risk of getting hepatitis B. What um, about C? Well, hepatitis C is interesting. Um, If you're born to a birth mom, just to compare the two, to a birth mom with hepatitis B and you're not treated at birth, your chance of getting, you know, chronic hepatitis B is about 80%. If you're born to a birth mom with hepatitis C, your statistical risk as a newborn of going on to carry hepatitis C is only 2 to 6%. So the rate is much lower in 
in the newborn of getting hepatitis C from a birth mom. Um, it's not zero, right? Uh, but, you know, children, so, you know, I certainly have children in my practice uh, with hepatitis C who've, um, who've gone on to have the disease. And most children with hepatitis C look and are healthy for decades. Um, uh, the good news about hepatitis C is we actually now have a treatment. Uh, it's an expensive one. It's not covered by all insurances. But we do have a treatment uh, that can cure hepatitis C. Not yet for hepatitis B, um, but I think all of us in the field believe that in, you know, in a baby born today, in their lifetime, we will have a cure for hepatitis B as well. So uh, those two, to me, are not at all a death knell uh, because, you know, most kids look and are completely healthy, you know, shouldn't share razors or toothbrushes or, um, you know, it can be bloodborne or sexually transmitted, both of those diseases. But, uh, but the chance of a cure, I think, in this kid's lifetime is really good. We have one now for hep C. We probably will for hepatitis B. And they are not big risks to adoptive families, again, if you avoid blood exposure. And 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 our last question: How soon after birth can an infant uh, be treated for hepatitis C? Well, we don't often treat newborns for hepatitis C because we wait to see if their livers, you know, again, their risk of getting hepatitis C long term is only two to six percent. So often we follow them out to the six and twelve month mark to see if they actually still have the disease. So we don't jump on board with treating the virus uh, if they're going to clear it on their own, right, anyway. Thank you so much, Dr. Julia Bledsoe, for talking with us today and educating us on what uh, the state of the art is of what we know on uh, exposures to opiates, uh, methamphetamines, marijuana, uh, and how they impact children both in the short term and the long term, as well as some of the diseases we need to be aware of. This has been immensely helpful. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure, and thank you so much. For our audience, uh, if you have been listening to this show, please do us a favor and give us a rating on iTunes. It is how other people find us, and uh, we are really appreciative uh, if you can do that. Thank you so much for listening to us today, and I will see you next week. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget, then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Moon. Yeah. That's Hugo tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations.